Our Father, we need change, we need renewal, we need transformation. And that change and transformation will only come about through Your Word. And so as we open it this morning, as we do every week, uh, would You enlighten our minds? Would You give our hearts an ability to grasp the essence of the message And would you change us by it? And Father, we we want to be changed. We want old habits to die. We want new and godly habits to be shaped in us. In a word, Father, we, we want to look more like Jesus, our Savior, even by the end of this day. And would you be pleased to accomplish that through the ministry of your word this morning? Give me accuracy and clarity and passion and joy with this word. And Father, might you change each one of us by this word, we pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. We are now a little over six months into the new year. So the new year is not so new anymore. If you think about the year as a lifespan, we're not even in the teenage years of the new year anymore. We're in the middle age years of the new year. And in case you haven't noticed, just a a friendly word of encouragement, we are now closer to next Christmas than last Christmas. So get out those lists and start shaping them, I guess. Uh, The days also are getting a little bit shorter, so we have crossed over the hump, and so instead of the days getting longer and enjoying the fullness of all the summer days, days are beginning to get shorter as we move towards winter, and isn't that a pleasant thought today, with the temperature going to be 100 and whatever it's going to be today? And since our year is middle-aged, it seems a good time to do a checkup on how we're doing this year. It's time for a mid-year evaluation and time for a mid-course correction. Now, I'm not talking about your, your dietary plans and your exercise programs. We know that those went away for most of us about six months ago. But I am concerned about your spiritual health. And in particular, I'm concerned about the condition of your Bible intake. Every year on the first Sunday of the year or near to the first Sunday of the year and near to the middle Sunday of the year, we take some time to to work through a stanza of Psalm 119 to orient our lives and to orient our hearts towards the Scriptures and the transformation that comes through the Scriptures. We've been at this for a number of years, and we are now officially over the halfway hump. We only have another five and a half years to go to finish Psalm 119. This morning we begin the twelfth stanza, the stanza that begins in verse 89. And while while I don't know everything that has happened in your life this year, I do know a few things about my life, and I do know a few things about the lives of some of you, and I know that, that this year has not turned out completely the way you would have desired this year to be. There have been relational difficulties, even perhaps broken relationships, perhaps a friend who has become an enemy for some of us. There have been financial burdens. There have been financial losses. 
There have been changes in health. Some of the changes have been big and some of the changes have been small. But all of the changes in our health have reflected the fallenness of our creation. There has been death this year. I was going to say when I was writing this message, I was going to say there has been untimely death. But then I thought, what death is ever timely? Death, death always intrudes as an enemy. Death never comes as a friend. Death never comes as a comfort. Death is always contrary to what we were created to be. Death is always untimely. And many of us have experienced the loss of someone through death this year. In a sentence, we have all experienced a variety of trials that have been weighty and hard And many of them, if not most of them, have been unanticipated. How should we think about those difficulties? How should we think about those trials? The writer of Psalm 119 helps us to understand that in this stanza, the 12th stanza. And here's what he says. He says, trials are limited. Troubles are not endless. Now, it feels like trouble is endless. It just seems like there's this constant barrage of trouble that is unending and eternal. But the psalmist says, it is not endless. What is endless is God's Word. God's Word is faithful and eternal in every way. God's power in His Word is unlimited. If we're going to take one sentence to to summarize this stanza, verses 89 to 96, we would say it this way. When you are afflicted, trust the faithfulness of God and His Word. When you're afflicted, when you're suffering, when you're persecuted, when you're in trial, when you're burdened, trust the faithfulness of God and His Word. Interestingly, the psalmist is picking up in this stanza the the theme from the previous stanza, a a theme that that focused on on persecution, on difficulty, on trial, on burdens. And and we see that throughout uh, the stanza beginning in verse 81. He says, um, verse 82, for instance, uh, When will you comfort me? When will there, there be provision for me? Uh, the arrogant, verse 85, have dug pits for me. They have, verse 86, persecuted me with a lie. I need your help. Will you help me? And in this stanza, the psalmist picks up the, the theme of suffering and continues that theme. He is still suffering. He is, he is still afflicted. Verse 92, he says, I, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 95, the wicked are waiting for me to destroy me. He is still in difficulty. He is still in trial. But here, he is affirming the attributes of God and the character of God in two particular ways. That, that provide comfort for him and also provide direction for him for how he will live. And as we follow his example, we will find that there is hope for every circumstance in which we live if we see the scriptures as the psalmist sees them and if we respond in the way that the psalmist responds. Here then are two reminders of the character of scripture and four exhortations for how to respond to Scripture. When you are afflicted, when you are afflicted, not if you are afflicted, 
when you are afflicted, you will be afflicted. Suffering is coming. Trial is coming. Persecution is coming. Difficulty is coming. And when you are afflicted, trust the faithfulness of God and His Word. Why should we do that? Well, he answers that question, uh, what is Scripture in verses 89 to 91? Why should we trust God? Why should we trust His Word? Because of the nature of what God's Word is. What is God's Word? Verses 89 to 91, he says God's Word is permanent. God's Word is permanent. What is Scripture? It is permanent. Again, in the previous stanza, the psalmist is, is overwhelmed with questions about God's Word and about God and His relationship. So he asks the question in verse 82, When will you come to comfort me? I am being afflicted from all around me. When will you minister your comfort to me? Verse 84, How many are the days of your servant? And when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Will there ever be righteousness in my lifetime? Will you ever preserve me? Will, will you make things right? And, and he even summarizes the, the stanza in verse 88 with a statement, but the statement actually has a question behind it. He makes the statement, Revive me according to your loving kindness. That loving kindness is His grace. It's, it's His mercy. It's, it's His loyalty to His people. So he says, Revive me according to your loving kindness. But isn't there a question behind that? The question is, Will you revive me? Are, are you trustworthy so that, so that I can depend on the fact that you will revive me? The, the tone in this stanza, well, in, in verse 89, while well, well, we're still dealing with affliction, while we're still dealing with persecution, while we're still dealing with suffering, the tone in this stanza, starting in verse 89, is very different. Stands 11, verse 81, he's asking all kinds of questions. Verse 89, he shifts from asking questions to making a declaration. I'm not asking, I'm telling myself, I'm reminding myself of the truth of what God is and, and what God's Word is. And what is, what is the declaration he makes? Notice the very first word, forever. Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. Your Word is forever. It is eternal. It is infinite in its duration and its length. And in fact, this idea of eternality and permanence runs throughout this stanza. Notice verse 89, Your Word is eternal. Verse 90, Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Not only is your Word faithful, not only is your Word eternal, but you are faithful and you are eternal as well. Verse 96, I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Your commandment, your word pervades all things, stands over all things, is broad enough to cover all things for all time. So the stanza begins verse 89 and ends verse 96 with a bold declaration of the permanence of God and His word. And notice something else from verse 89. He says, forever, O Lord. The one who owns this word, the one who decrees this word, the one who compels this word is the Lord. This is, this is the covenant name for God. This is, this is His name, Yahweh. This is the name by which He reveals Himself to the nation of Israel, makes His covenant with the nation of Israel and the promises with them. And He is... 
as Yahweh, the eternal God, the infinite God, the limitless God, the powerful God. He is the God, as he says to Moses in the revelation of this name in Exodus chapter 3, He is the God who is. I am who I am. He is eternal in nature. His word is eternal and he is eternal. Notice then what he says about this word, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And that little phrase, settled in heaven, he is emphasizing both the scripture's position and the scripture's place. By position, it is settled. That is, it stands. It is positioned as steadfast and stable and immovable. Now we would infer from that that it is permanent and unchanging. Now everything in our lives changes. Everything we know needs updating. Computer and phone apps need updating. I turned on my phone this morning and the first thing it said was, you need to update your phone. Do you want to? No! I don't, in fact. Leave me alone. Address books need changing and updating. Books need revisions. Cars need replacing and, and repairs. Light bulbs need changing. Flowers, trees, grass need to be replanted. We pulled into our driveway on Monday afternoon coming back from vacation and Regine took one look at the yard and said, well, there goes the yard for this year. Need to replace it for next year. It's all burned up. It's all dried. Even laundry detergent needs improving. I mean, who'd have thought? I mean, it's just soap. You just got to clean it, but there it is on the shelf, new and improved, as if what it was previously was inadequate. They wanted you to buy it then. They want you to buy it now. You know, we've, we've improved it. It wasn't any good before, but now it's better, and now you can trust us to buy it. it uh, everything, everything needs updating. Everything needs changing. Everything needs transformation. But Scripture is settled. No updates with Scripture. No revisions. No repairs. No improvements. It is perfectly, perfectly adequate. It has always been perfect. And because it is always perfect, it is always steadfast. It is always settled. It is always trustworthy. Your word is settled. But notice not only its position, but notice its place, its In heaven, your word is settled in heaven. To say that it is stable in heaven is to affirm that it emanates from God and exists in the presence of God and has the characteristics and qualities of God. It is just as stable and just as infinite and just as eternal as God is stable and infinite and eternal. Everything on earth is subject to change and modification, but not in heaven and not this word. The the sense seems to be, who can thwart this word 
Because who can reach into heaven to grab this word and pull it down and change it and improve it? Who can go there to change it? Who was there to argue with it when it was written? Who will outlive it? No one. It's permanent. And it is over us and it compels us because it surpasses us and supersedes us. This word, this Bible, this book you hold in your hand is an eternally adequate source for life. But it's not just this word that is adequate, not just this word that is eternal. Notice what he also says in verse 90. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. We would we'd expect him to say your word is faithful throughout all generations. But he doesn't just say that. He says you yourself are faithful to all generations. God himself is stable and permanent. Always. In every generation, God is unchangingly faithful. The generations of man change and pass away, but, but God and His Word never change, never pass away. They've always been and always will be fully adequate to meet the need of every person in every generation, in every culture, in every moment of history. In all generations, God, you are faithful. There has never been a time when God's faithfulness was inadequate. And we see that faithfulness, he says in verse 89, in the creation of the world. Or excuse me, in verse 90, in the creation of the world. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Where do we see that? You establish the earth and it stands. How do we know that God is faithful? We just can look at creation. And we see in creation a reflection of the glory of God that, that demonstrates His faithfulness. Here the psalmist seems to be anticipating a similar theme to what Paul will play out in Colossians chapter 1, where he writes in verse 16, For by Him all things were created. Speaking about Christ. By Him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things And in Him, all things hold together. He keeps it together. He holds it. He sustains it. We look at creation and we see the glory of Christ, the glory of God, the eternality of God. My friends, the Word of God can no more fail than the earth can stop rotating on its axis. The earth is is sometimes viewed as being on the shoulders of Atlas. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. No man can carry the burdens of the earth except one alone, and that is Jesus Christ and God our Father in heaven. He establishes the earth. He keeps it in place. Friends, we, we do well. We do well to look at creation and to see in creation the faithfulness of God. Go, go to the mountains and look at the majesty of the mountains and look how they are rooted and secured to the earth, immovable, and say, that is my God who is faithful to stay where He is and be what He is. See the constancy of 24-hour days and 7-day weeks and 365-day years and see the cycle of time and understand that it is it is a faithful God who runs that that time system according to His order and His structure. See the faithfulness of of the seasons to come. 
Some of you are going to look at your, at your phone app, your weather app today, and you're going to, you're going to look, what's tomorrow going to be like? It's going to be hot. But you're going to look and say, I wonder what time it's going to start to get hot. What time does the sun come up? And you're going to, you're going to push a button and it'll say, sunrise tomorrow. I don't know what time it's going to be. 602 or something like that. How do they know? How do they know? Because there is a faithful God who has ordered the universe that makes sunrise and sunset predictive in its quality. That, that, that reflects the faithfulness of God. When you look at your phone app, you're seeing the faithfulness of God when we can predict what time the sun would come up tomorrow morning. Look at creation and see the faithfulness and the permanence of God. Notice also how the psalmist expands this in verse 91. They stand this day according to your ordinances. Your ordinances have decreed what is going to stand and what doesn't stand. Your, your ordinances, your, your design, your plan, your precepts for how the world is going to run, that has designed what's going to stand. Now the question is, when the psalmist says, they stand, according to your ordinances, what is they? Because if you look back, the immediate thing that would precede that is he says, you establish the earth. That's a singular. And now he says in verse 91, they, they doesn't match earth. So what is the psalmist referring to? I think it's probably best to take it that we go back to verse 89 as well. And he says, your word is settled in heaven and you established the earth and they, heaven and earth, both all stand according to your ordinances. Everything that is in heaven, everything that is on earth, all stands according to the decree and the permanence and the faithfulness and the stability of God. And in fact, notice what he says at the end of verse 91, all things are your servants. Every atom in the universe stands in subservience to God. There is not a single renegade atom in the universe. Every atom functions according to God's ordinance, to God's plan. Everything is His servant. He is faithful. And His Word is faithful. My friends, life is full of trouble. The psalmist has already noted numerous times in this psalm the kinds of troubles he has faced. Verse 69, he says, The arrogant have forged a lie against me. Verse 78, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. And it it might be tempting to look at this world where there's suffering and there's trial and there's opposition and even persecution like the psalmist is facing And it might be tempting in that moment to say, there's got to be something else. Let me look to something else to find my satisfaction. And we might look to food or to drink or possessions or relationships or sex or knowledge or education or wealth or position. My friends, all those things are unstable. All of those things change. If you're 22, you think... The world is just marching on. It'll be this way forever. And now in my mid-50s, I'm realizing 
things change. The mind isn't quite as sharp. Yesterday, I was um, talking to Regine and I said, who's that person over there? It's somebody I've known for 10 years. What's her name? And she looked at me and said, they named the name? Yeah, that's it. What's wrong with me? My brain doesn't work as well as it used to. That's the way life is, right? Nothing functions as well. And it's tempting to look at the, at, for things. The world is saying, look to these things. They'll give you satisfaction. Friends, they aren't permanent. They aren't lasting. There's only one thing that lasts. That's God and His Word. If you want help in your trial, don't, don't go to the things that the world offers. Go to the things that God offers in His Word. When you've had trouble this year, where have you gone? What's been your source of strength? Where have you sought refuge? Where have you sought protection? What have you desired? What have you thought about? What have you meditated on? This verse reminds us that there is only one place, one thing that will be stable for us, and that is the living and abiding Word of God. Have you run to that Word this year? Have you embraced that Word as permanent, faithful, and trustworthy? What is Scripture and why should we hold on to it? It is permanent, and we should hold on to it because it is permanent. There's another question that the psalmist infers, and it's, it's answered in verses 92 to 95. It is the question, how should I respond to Scripture? How should I respond to Scripture? A number of years ago, I was just reading through Psalm 119, and it was one of those, you know, read through the Bible plan, and you're just saturated with Psalm 119. You're reading all these verses about Scripture over and over and over. And I was struck by all the different ways that the that this psalm compels us to respond to Scripture. And so I went back and I just started making notes about all the things that the, that the Scripture says we should do in relation to the Scripture. And I came up with a list of at least 45 responses to Scripture. For instance, account Scripture as worthy. Be in awe of Scripture. Behold and look on and see Scripture. Believe in Scripture. Understand Scripture to be better than something else to you. Choose it. Cling to it. Be comforted by it. Consider it. Counsel with it. Delight in it. Esteem it. Incline your heart to it. Keep it. Learn it. Know it. Loathe the treacherous who, who hate it. Long for it. Love it. Meditate on it. Do not be ashamed of it. Do not forget it. Do not forsake it. Do not go astray from it. Do not turn away from it. Obey it. Praise God because of it. Regard it. Reject wanderers from it. Rejoice in it. Remember it. Run after it. Run with it. Seek it. Sing it. Speak it. Be, let it be sweet to your taste. Give thanks for it. Uh, treasure it, trust it, turn to it, wait for it, long for it, weep for it, and be zealous for it. From A to Z, this is, this is our response to the Scriptures. And, and in this particular section, verses 92 to 95, the psalmist gives us four appropriate responses to the Scriptures, almost as if he's laid it out. Here it is, it's eternal. And because it's eternal, this is what you ought to do with it. Verse 92, the first thing he says to do with Scripture is delight in it. Verse 92, delight in it. If 
the law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. This is a reminder again that, that he is suffering and he is afflicted. We don't know. Is he thinking about the afflictions that come from persecution that we've already alluded to? Are these things that just come from living in a fallen world? He talks several times. For instance, verse 71, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted. That's just a general term. Um, just we live in this broken world and we suffer by living in this broken world. Is that what he's talking about? Or is he even talking about the afflictions that come from the hand of God? Verse 75, In faithfulness, you, God, have afflicted me. Now, we don't know specifically what he is talking about, but whatever he's talking about in verse 92, he says, I have affliction. It is, it is current. It is, it is now. And it is deadly. Apart from a particular action, I would have perished in my affliction. I would have died in my affliction, except for the fact that God's word is a delight to him. Notice, notice specifically what he says, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight. The law of God was a delight to the psalmist. The law of God was invigorating to him. The law of God was his encouragement, was his hope. Now I want you to notice two particular items about this phrase, if your law had not been my delight. First, it was the law that delighted the psalmist. The psalmist found comfort in the commands of God. Now, I don't know about you and your house, but at me and my house, or let me just say me... Whenever the government says, we have a new law for you to protect you and to help you, my natural response is not, oh, yay, the government has another law for me. Okay, so for a few of you, it's working the same at your house. But notice what the psalmist says. The law, the commands of God the direction of God, the the place where God compels us and says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. He says, that's what is my delight. What is that delight? That's the second thing I want you to notice. That delight is is something that that is um, a source of amusement or pleasure or joy. Or satisfaction. It's interesting, this, this little word delight is only used seven times in the whole Old Testament and five times it appears in this singular psalm. For instance, verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. Verse 77, your law is my delight. We've just seen this in verse 92. Your law is my delight. Verse 143, your commandments are my delight. Verse 174, your law is my delight. 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 Now, it's not just a delight that happens as he considers the law. That's part of it. So he looks at the law. He sees what God commands. He sees the direction that God gives. and, And he sees that and he says, oh, that's good. But it's also that he is choosing to delight. He's making a choice to say, I want to delight. As I, as I reflect on the nature of God and I, I reflect on his infinite nature and as I reflect on, on his faithfulness, I am choosing to delight in what he gives me. Now, that's, again, not a natural response. 
We, we don't always respond in delight to those things that are given to us for our good. When, when I was about eight years old, my folks were going out for an evening, and so they, they took me and my brother over to our next-door neighbor, and the neighbor was trying to make things palatable for this cranky eight-year-old, and he, he said, um, so glad you're here this evening, and, and just want you to know, we're having pizza for dinner. I don't like pizza. I told you I was cranky. I don't like pizza. You don't like pizza? No, I don't like pizza. Wise man asks another question. Have you ever had pizza? No, but I don't like it. Why don't we try some and then let's see if you don't like it. And what do you know? I like pizza. In fact, I like pizza so much that when we were on vacation last week, I made pizza twice. Um, we like pizza. Why did I think I didn't like it? Because I'd never had it. Or, or maybe... Maybe I might have had um, a bad imitation of pizza. I remember when I was in high school. We, by that time, I'd learned to eat pizza. And, and in high school, um, we ate for Sunday lunch a lot of $1 pizzas that, you know, you get out of the freezer and then you pop them in the oven. i got to tell you, if that's all the pizza is, I'm not in. I'm out. Don't like pizza. Why? Because I don't like frozen cardboard. And I think some people don't delight in Scripture because that's all they've ever had. They've had the frozen cardboard version of Scripture. They've never understood the the beauty of it. They've never understood the wonder of it. They've never understood the revelation of God in it. They've never tasted. They've never tasted my pizza that I made last week on the grill. And I've got to tell you, it's really awesome. Um, If you ask nicely, I'll I'll tell you how I made it someday. But um, it's worth coming to my house to get. It is my perception that Scripture has not been tried and found wanting. Scripture has been found commanding and left untried. Yes, Scripture will make demands. Yes, it is a law. But as we obey it, we will find those laws to be a joy and a delight. One writer has noted from this verse, we learn that God's sufficiency is more than a match for our suffering. If you're suffering, and, and all of us are in some way or another, then learn to cultivate delight in God's words. Your circumstances may not be happy, but by this book you will learn to be happy in the one who is over your circumstance. Delight in Scripture. There's a second response that the psalmist gives to us. That's in verse 93. He says, I will never forget your precepts. I will never forget your precepts. So so here's the principle. Remember Scripture. Delight in Scripture, verse 92. Verse 93, remember Scripture. And, And he says specifically, I never want to get to the place where I forget your precepts. In fact, if we look at verse 93, you can't see it in in the English translation because it, it just would be too cumbersome to translate it this way. But the first word in verse 93 is the same first word as in verse 89. Forever, forever will I not forget your precepts. 
In other words, I will always work, I will always labor to remember what you have said in your word. I will always remember your instructions and your guidance and your direction. And and why should he remember those things? Notice the end of verse 93. He gives the reason. For, because by them you have revived me. Now the word revive means to bring back to life as if something is something is dead and now it's renewed and brought back to life. But But the actual word you can translate much more literally, you have made alive. It's not revival. It's, it's life-giving in the first sense. This is, this is like Adam. And God speaks, and there's Adam. God speaks, there's all of creation. Christ speaks, and here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. This is God bringing to life. When God speaks, things come to life, both in the physical and spiritual realm. Do we believe that God will revive us and give us life through His Word? Or do we believe that life comes from other answers from the world? We might ask ourselves another question. Am I I actively working to remember the precepts of God that govern my particular situation? Am I remembering that I, what I need to remember about God and His Word for this situation? In my trial, am I remembering the truth about God's principles for trials? This really, when, when he says, I will never forget your precepts, this isn't really a call to memorize Bible verses, though that certainly helps. He's saying, All through the day, everything you think about should be oriented towards remembering the principles of God that are in this book that will guide you to make decisions that honor Him. Are you actively remembering the principles of Scripture to guide you? There's a third principle for how to respond that's given to us in verse 94 where he says, Seek Scripture. Notice verse 93, he says, You have revived me, or better, you have brought me to life. So, verse 94, I am yours. Because you have created me, because you have given me life, because you have given me spiritual life, I'm yours. I belong to you. You're my commander. You're my king. You're my master. I'm subservient to you. And then he makes the statement, Save me. He makes the statement, save me, because, verse 95, the wicked are waiting for me to destroy me. So I'm yours spiritually, yet I still live in this physical world where people are seeking my destruction and seeking to do me harm. I need physical protection. Would you save me in that sense? I, I belong to you. Would you save me in every sense, particularly here physically? Why, why should God... Save the psalmist because he says, verse 94, I have sought your precepts. I've actively sought fellowship with you. I I have been careful to examine your word, to take it apart, to, to see what it says. And through that, I have sought to be obedient to you. I've examined and studied with diligence what your word has to say. And I've placed myself underneath it. Says one writer, here is a believer who beat a path to the Bible, read it over and over, and studied it, and when he had to make a decision, consulted it carefully. 
Philosophies change. Political expedients fail. Promises and contracts are broken. But the Word of God stands. It's been my observation, both in my own life and and watching other people as well. When hard times come, the temptation is to flee the Scriptures. It, like, like Jonah, we, we, we get into the hardship and we say, God's Word can't apply in this situation. I mean, it normally does and it's normally good, but, but in this situation, I have a better idea. And so like, like Jonah, we flee and go the opposite direction. When the very thing we need to be doing is what the psalmist is doing, and we need to flee to the Scriptures, to seek the Scriptures, to desire the Scriptures. Interestingly, this word that he says that we are to seek, he says we are to seek your precepts. I've sought your precepts. That word precepts is the very same one he gives in verse 93. I'll never forget your precepts. The, the precepts are, are, are instructions and directions that come from an overseer. So it's someone who is a manager over a situation, understands the situation, and gives instruction for how to conduct yourself in the middle of that situation. That's what I'm seeking I have problem in this world, but you have given instruction as to how to respond in this world, and that's what I'm seeking. That's where I'm going. I'm seeking your appropriate commands. While we were on vacation last week, we were sitting making a decision about where we were going to go. We're all in the car, and and, uh, Regine just kind of glanced over to the car next to us, and she, she exclaimed, that guy's using a MAPSCO. And I said, that's cool. And my 20-year-olds in the back seat said, what's a MAPSCO? I said, a MAPSCO is a really detailed map. It's like a half to inch thick book that gives a map of every street in the city that gives you direction on where you can go. And it's, it was really expensive. They were like 30 bucks and, and you had to buy a new one every year because every year they got obsolete. In fact, I just read this, uh, this week, um, for the Dallas city map, Every year they made on average 750 changes to the MAPSCO. So if you want to get where you're going, before Google, you got to pull out the $30 MAPSCO and every December you throw the $30 MAPSCO away and buy another one. It was a good racket. And that's the way the world system works, isn't it? The world system keeps offering us things and saying, this is the way to go, this is the pathway, this is hope, this is direction. And then it fails, and they say, well, that one failed, but try this one, and go over here and try that. And well, that one fails, and well, let's try this one over here. Well, friends, there's only one direction book that's going to guide you and, and provide wisdom for you in all generations, and it's this book you hold in your lap. It's that and nothing else. So seek it. Delight in Scripture. Remember Scripture. Seek Scripture. Verse 95, fourth direction that he gives us consider scripture now, notice there's a progression here delight in scripture that's our affections remember scripture that's informing our minds seeking scripture that's digging into the scripture considering scripture that's applying what the scripture is and doing what it says and so the wicked wait for me to destroy me he says again he's suffering he's afflicted there are people who who are setting a trap for him. The wicked have, have set snares, and it's like they're, they're standing behind the bushes waiting for him to come and fall into their snares, and then they will destroy him. 
And he says, I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Here's what's going on. The temptation is to look at the people who are persecuting him. The temptation is, is to look at all the traps that they have set for him. The, the temptation is to look at all of the unfairness of everything they're doing against him and to just be, in a, in a word, obsessed with those who have done me wrong. The psalmist doesn't do that. They wait for me to destroy me. That's the reality of his condition. Side note. It's good to remember that just because we're following Jesus Christ doesn't mean there's not going to be any problems. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have enemies. We may well have more enemies because we're following Jesus Christ, but that's not what he's considering. That's not what he's meditating on. That's not what he's focused on. Instead, he says, I shall diligently consider your testimonies. The testimonies are are God's declaration of what's right and what's wrong. A testimony is a witness. It, it says, this is right, this is true, this is faithful, this is wrong, this is sin, this is ungodliness. And I testify, God says, to that. And so the psalmist says, that's what I'm going to consider. I'm going to consider the testimonies of what's right and what's true and what's false and what's wrong. And I'm going to lean on those things. I'm not going to think about those who are out to persecute me. I'm not going to think about those who are out to pressure me. I'm not going to think about those who are seeking to do me harm. I will think about the one who is sovereign over them and who will one day judge them. He remembers remembers the promises of God in the dark parts of the night. Friends, this is the opposite of the anxious soul. This is contrary to the angry man who's upset because of his circumstances. This is in opposition to the despondent and discouraged heart. When we're anxious, when we're angry, when we're depressed, when we're considering the weight and power of our enemies and our circumstances, we need instead to be considering the power and authority of God and His Word. Meditate on Him. When, you, when you're being attacked, when you're being criticized, when you're being condemned, when you're being pursued, when you are suffering, don't attempt to self-justify. Just cling to the one who will justify you. So we have seen what Scripture is. It's permanent. We've seen how to respond to Scripture, delight in it, remember it, seek it, consider it. One more question. What is Scripture? Verse 96. It is authoritative. So the psalmist says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. And again, he's picking up here the idea of commandment. There's an imperative. There's something that he's demanding that we do. There's something that he's commanding us to do. We aren't allowed to go on our own. We need to place ourselves in submission to him. So there's, there's an authoritative aspect to the word of God. It is true and it is faithful. That's verse 89. Now verse 96, it is also authoritative. It, it commands us as to where we will go. But how is that good? Because he says, I've seen a limit to all perfection. The world labels all kinds of things as perfect and good. The, these flowers that are up here uh, on the po- in front of the podium this morning are from a wedding yesterday of, of the Fessmeyers. Tristan and Courtney got married and, and left these flowers behind. And you, and you look at that wedding and you look at that bride and you look at that groom and you say, it's the perfect couple. 
And then day two comes. As, as, as one skeptic said, in any, in any marriage more than seven days old, there are grounds for divorce. I don't think it's quite that bad. But he is saying, in any marriage more than seven days old, you know you're both sinners, don't you? Absolutely you do. There's no marriage that's perfect. Children are perfect. Right. This job is perfect. This car is perfect. That's why they have so many mechanics shops in Granbury, because of all the perfect cars running down the road. This new law is perfect. Notice what the psalmist says. I've seen a limit to all perfection. The world says, this is perfect, this is perfect. Trust this, pursue this, delight in this. Find your satisfaction here. Indulge yourself and engage in these things. You have a right to it. It's perfect. Nope. There's an end to it. There's a limit to it. It has inadequacies. But, he says, the commandment of God that will move you away from a lot of the things that the world says are right and good and perfect, he says, that commandment is exceedingly broad. That's, that's an exceedingly understated way to say it's perfect. It's exceedingly broad. Find a situation and the commandment of God will be broad enough to cover it and provide for it. It's exceedingly broad. It's adequate. It is sufficient. What is Scripture? Scripture's two things, according to this stanza. It's faithful. It's true. And it is authoritative. The question for us as we come to an end of this stanza is to ask, have I done what it says to do? As I've suffered this year, have I learned to delight in it, remember it, seek it, and consider it? How are you doing this year with this word? Has your affliction and your suffering driven you to the word of God? Or has it driven you away from the word of God? Has your persecution made you cling more tightly to the word of God as your hope? Or have you sought your refuge in a false and empty and limited God of the world? It is a faithful word. It is an authoritative word. Delight in it. Remember it. Seek it. Consider it. Our Father, we want this word to shape our lives and our hearts. We need that shaping. We need that transformation. We need that conformity to You. We confess, some of us, that we have been suffering and hurting and in much pain this year. And we have allowed that pain and that affliction to drive us away from You. We confess that as sin. And we ask that You would forgive us of ignoring Your Word, that You would forgive us for not seeking Your Word, for not delighting in Your Word, for not considering Your Word. And would You give us great satisfaction in the faithfulness and authority of Your Word as we move forward from this day. Even, Father, this afternoon, would You compel us in such a way that we make change in the way we relate to your word. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory.
Amen.